Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the Blue Wire podcast network as well as the HubSpot podcast network. Now, the HubSpot podcast network has incredible shows like The Hustle Daily. It's hosted by Zachary Crockett, Jacob Cohen, Rob Litterst, and Juliet Bennett Ryla. Now, The Hustle Daily brings you a healthy dose of irreverent, offbeat and informative takes on business tech and news and it happens daily so if you want to stay up to date on the latest and greatest and some of these topics are interesting to you then you're going to love the hustle daily uh, topics like amazon's grocery strategy the rise of the ugly shoe economy is ai the secret to love and america's sleep deficit problem so if these are topics you want to get into and you love hearing up-to-date content whenever you wake up in the morning Go listen to The Hustle Daily wherever you listen to your podcast. Today, my guest is Charlie Fang. Charlie is the co-founder of ClearCo. He has worked behind the scenes as the company has scaled from three founders to almost 1,000 employees, and he's raised over $300 million at a $2 billion evaluation. ClearCo is one of the top startups in Canada. It's a fintech company that uses AI to democratize access to capital. Charlie's job is to build up teams and products, make them shine, then move on to the next. While he was working as an operator and active in ClearCo, now he's taken a step back and he works in angel, VC, PE, uh, investing, uh, board seats, advisory. But when he was still working in ClearCo, he was ClearCo's first head of product, head of marketing, head of growth, finance, strategy, biz ops, new ventures. That work meant putting the ego aside focusing on supporting new hires, constantly training his own replacements and spending his time ensuring that the quickly growing company ran smoothly. He's a jack of all trades whose job is to share the glory, bow out, and then step into the next vital role. The strategy has paid off. The company's headcount has more than doubled since the start of this year. It's still growing. 
ClearCo was named number two on LinkedIn's Top Startups Canada, which looks at the ability to attract top talent. It's a company's third year in a row in the top three. Earlier this year, ClearCo raised $215 million from SoftBank Vision Fund 2, just weeks after a $100 million Series C round that quintupled its valuation to $2 billion. So we spoke about ClearCo. We spoke about the vision for ClearCo, democratizing access to capital. We spoke about the vision, $1 billion invested and how they did it. We spoke about uh, their model for investing in companies, the 20-minute term sheets, the data-driven decisions, uh, how ClearCo helps companies grow, and why they chose to have no equity or seat at the table for companies. And then we focused on what he's doing now, which is ClearCo is really focused on the 1 to 10 for a company, for a startup. He's focused on the zero to one. So he's focused on building companies from the ground up. So we spoke about founder market fit. We spoke about product market fit, how to find both of these these things and what they actually mean. Uh, we spoke about hiring and scaling. We spoke about feedback loops from customers. Then we also spoke about growth channels and mediums that work the best and how to decide as a founder when to double down on one medium to actually scale and grow your business and potentially when to abandon something that isn't working out so well. So let's jump right into it. This is Charlie Fang. He is the co-founder of ClearCo. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, hey, Scott. Thanks for thanks for having me here. Uh, so my story goes very uh, perhaps unconventional um, or at the very least uh, when I was a kid, had no idea I wanted to do anything related to entrepreneurship. I didn't know if that was a, a career path or something you could do, uh, like making a career out of uh, doing your own business. Um, I'm a first-generation immigrant. Uh, parents worked in some government in, in Ottawa and Canada here uh, for over 20 years. And very much growing up, I was thought it was kind of like, you know, you go kind of the steady route. That, pa that path is almost paid for me. Uh, and it, it wasn't until kind of college where I recognized that uh, there is an alternative path where you could, there's a lot of interesting problems out there in the world. And if you kind of just work on what you want to work on um, and keep focusing on it, you could build a career out of it. And that's kind of what I stumbled from uh, my early days as a professional gamer to finance, realizing that wasn't the thing, and then going into uh, startups. Uh, where I focus most of my time now. So you were, you, had, you were at one point a professional gamer. Um, was that the first, did you get paid to game? Was that like the first version of entrepreneurship for you? Like not working for, not working for company, working for yourself? Uh, funny enough, I'd say the first uh, version of entrepreneurship was actually just myself, teaching myself how to code and trying to yeah. uh, play video games when my parents wouldn't let me play video games. So I would uh, code up these kind of you know, bots that would play games while I'm at school and uh, leave the computer on. I turned the monitor off so my parents wouldn't find out and uh, uh, you know, got a lot of in-game items and started selling that. So that was actually my first, I guess. I didn't know that really? was like a, a thing. I, I was just doing that because you know, <laughs> I wanted to play the game, but uh, I'd say that's probably my first uh, taste of it. Okay, so um, you're, you're, uh, you're selling uh, video game items. Um, you said you went to finance for a bit. I guess that was more of like a, a traditional, you, you worked for somebody before because i'm just trying to get a time frame of of because obviously the most i would i want to say the most notable thing but something that has you've created that has tons of success and and is well known is is clear code so after you did the video games you moved into finance i'm i always like to understand the mindset of what drove you to build something from the ground up and the problem you were solving and why you decided to build clear bank clear co 
what was the what was the process behind that? Because you didn't come from Clearco focuses on e-commerce and helping e-commerce scale, and that was sort of the initial iteration of 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 Clearco. But you didn't come from e-commerce, so I'm trying to understand how you identified this is a potential solution for e-commerce entrepreneurs. Um, where was your head at? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, and I think the interesting part about the uh, Clear co-founding team is that uh, we were all, n- none of us kind of came from the traditional, I guess, banking fintech space. Uh, and that kind of offered us both a fresh perspective and kind of a, we, I, our naivety was almost like a, an advantage to a certain extent. Um, so for myself personally, I had a bit of a work in corporate finance, a bit in kind of credit and bond rating for a little bit. Realized that you know the corporate life wasn't quite for me, uh, but started a couple of uh, startups after that and before I started Clearco, and all the all the founders we were uh, kind of um, we had we were repeat founders where we had you know, some were more successful than others in terms of our previous companies, but we all kind of been through or had uh, experienced the startup journey in different shapes and forms, and uh, one thing we kind of all came to realize is that. Nobody really starts a company to raise money. Nobody starts a business. You start an idea because you want to solve a problem or you have something that you're like, oh, I'm very excited about building something new. But no one starts it because they want to fundraise or they want to go on the road and meet investors. Yet every CEO or every founder find themselves spending quarter to half of the year fundraising uh, and trying to get the funds to run their business. And I think it's that kind of commonality that we found in all of our journeys that made us want to build Clearco, something that could help us uh, help the next generation of entrepreneurs not necessarily dilute themselves, not necessarily have an alternative source of uh, getting getting funding if needed. That makes sense. And that is um, probably the biggest pain, like when it comes to, to keeping your business going. Um, but the model you took is very different. And I think the model you took is very novel. And I think Clearco has a has a pretty good name and a lot of people know it, but for people that don't, explain what a traditional, for people that have never raised money before, explain what the traditional process is for a founder who's looking to go get money and then explain why Clearco is different and maybe why you chose to do it differently. Yeah, so I'll talk a bit about kind of the landscape maybe before Clearco and now this mm-hmm. new generation of alternative capital that you know we're pretty excited that this new kind of class of assets, uh, this asset class has kind of, more risen up over the last couple of years. Um, but traditionally, as a business owner, you have two choices. You could either uh, go to the bank and get debt. Uh, so you put, you know, it's usually personally guaranteed, unfortunately. You put some kind of collateral on the line, whether you have a, a factory or you know, a, a property, you put that on the line and you get debt. Uh, so essentially, you get liquidity from a fixed asset. And then the other way is you get access to capital by raising equity which is what you see on TechCrunch and kind of all the traditional uh, raising capital, people call it. And that is by trading away a portion of your company. So let's say you give away 20% of your company to a venture capitalist and they give you X amount of money to, to hopefully build your business, right? And they're hoping that you'll make it big. So are you. Um, one thing we realize is that uh, two interesting factors. One is for a lot of the new generation of businesses, these kind of online digital businesses, they are almost by definition asset light, right? Like an e-commerce store, they don't have a factory. They don't have these physical assets or an oven or something to kind of collateralize against. So going to the bank is oftentimes not an option or kind of what we see as kind of a, an advantage being asset light 
is actually seen as a disadvantage in the, in the face of kind of getting money from the bank. And for a lot of these businesses that are e-commerce, for example, these digital businesses, they are already generating revenue. These are businesses we're talking about that are not, um, so a lot of the businesses that we're, we're funding are these revenue generating online businesses. Uh, they, they, they already kind of done, done the R&D where they already have the product there. And uh, they kind of know that for every dollar they put into Facebook or every dollar they put into you know, marketing, advertising, uh, they get $2 out on the other side, right? So then to give away equity every time you're running a Facebook ad is not the best trade. So uh, that's kind of what we started to figure out, like, is there a different way to fund these businesses uh, that's been more efficient? Um, and I think our belief is always that about, around the idea of what is the most efficient way to capitalize or fund your business? So uh, if you are an R&D heavy business, we're doing AI and new technology, pharma, um, you probably should raise equity. We, we, we partner up with a lot of VCs and we think equity is great. It's, it's truly risk capital. It's for things that are in that zero to one phase. But once you're kind of going from that one to 10, you're scaling, uh, sometimes that doesn't, doesn't make as much sense anymore. And that's uh, why we built Critical. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, the new year might have you thinking ahead to what you want out of your career. So when you think about your success story, what do you actually picture? Is it retiring early with a beautiful view of the skyline? Is it leaving a legacy with your name on it? Or maybe it's helping influence and change some of the world's most pressing issues. Whatever it is, writing your success story starts by working smart. Because when you work smart, your success story writes itself. A HubSpot CRM platform helps your marketing campaigns work harder and smarter. With intuitive visual workflows and bot builders, you can create scalable automated campaigns across email, social media, web, and chat so your customers hear your messages loud and clear. Are you tired of your content not adapting to mobile, making it difficult for your customers to absorb your message? A HubSpot CRM platform optimizes your content for multiple devices so that you can reach your customers wherever they are which is just smart. Learn more about how you can transform your customer experience with a HubSpot CRM at HubSpot.com. And I'm curious um, because the traditional model, even from like the one to 10 phase, when somebody invests in a business, they have a little bit of equity. Sometimes they have a seat at the table, but your model, you don't have anything at all. Like you have, you like there's a payback and there's a percentage. Mm -hmm. So you do make you like, it's a benefit, it's a financial benefit to ClearCo. Uh, when the company does well, and it's obviously a benefit to the company as well, but you can't influence decisions. You can't have a seat at the board. You can't do all these things that traditionally um, somebody putting money into a company would want to have. And I'm curious if that was uh, risky or unnerving or obviously not because ClearCo has worked, but I mean, as founders, you're going against the model where you have less influence over the decisions of the company yeah no i think you're absolutely right scott at the at the early days it was definitely unnerving <laughs> or when we were kind of first proposed and we're like uh it was very much against the grain of sand and um a lot of uh people told us that this is kind of not the way things are done it's a little bit crazy and i think kind of going back to because the fact that none of us came from this background or credit um mm. it, it kind of that naivety almost kind of gave us a bit of an advantage and i find that happen a lot of times in entrepreneurship where um, coming kind of from a fresh perspective allows you to solve the problem or tackle the problem from a different angle. And for us, uh, it was very much, you know, the traditional idea of 
if the founder is the one, you, you need to secure against the founder something, right? So you usually personally guarantee it or you do some, some form uh, where you're, again, it goes back to, it might not be the businesses because the business might not have a physical asset, but it goes to the personally guarantee of the founders that physical asset, right? There's some kind of, it goes back to that traditional way of underwriting. Mm-hmm. And for us, uh, because we got very good data from uh, the businesses themselves, these were all digital and online businesses. So as a result, uh, we plug into Stripe, we plug into Shopify, Amazon, Google, and we get a pretty good sense of kind of the economics or how the business works. Um, and based on that, it kind of made us a lot more comfortable. It was similar to reading a financial statement, but instead of kind of seeing a yearly report, we see per transaction on the day, on the minute. And I think that helped us a lot, at least push through for the first part. Uh, and I guess as we uh, developed the algorithm and as we got better, we realized that the, the default rate for the, um, uh, the quality of the, uh, the capital we were giving out was actually quite high. And uh, we were actually a lot better than kind of industry standards. So it worked oh, out okay. over time. It, wor- it worked out. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking that seems like the, it seems like at the beginning, but like any, any, any entrepreneurial venture is like risky, right? It is risky. It's just, yeah. it, I, I love that. I love that, that, that statement, like the naivety going into this is probably what allowed you to be successful because anybody who came from a, a VC or PE world would just like, <laughs> I feel like they'd grow too many gray hairs. They get too stressed out. Like they wouldn't do it because it's not what people are used to. Um, when you first started uh, ClearBank, now ClearCo, um, uh, you wanted to invest $1 billion. What does that mean and how did you achieve that? Was that the vision or the mission of the company? Yeah, that was kind of the, uh, that was kind of the, the big milestone goal. Uh, the, our, our mission is really around empowering founders. And we thought that uh, capital, at least to start, was the best way to empower founders. Um, and I think we always had this philosophy and it's part of the reason why we don't you know, take uh, board seats or we don't kind of take control in any ways because we believe that the founders kind of know how to solve the problem the best. Like they're the, cl- they're the ones that are closest to the metal. They're closest to the problem that and the customers that they're solving for and kind of like who are we to tell them how to run their business, if you will. And I think when it comes to uh, the, 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 the reason you want to sit on a board or the reason you want to advise or help uh, a founder or empower founders, there's two ways to do it. One is it comes in the form of kind of support. Um, so whether that be, uh, so a lot of kind of VC, if you think about the board, uh, a board on your seat, um, a lot of the help comes in two forms. One is the help from a referral. They tell you, they give you connections, help you hire people. Um, and those are things that ClearCo is now starting to build out a lot of, we have a lot of these partnerships with other, the right vendors, connecting people with the right, um, how to spend their capital. Cause that's one of the problems we always uh, get the question of. And I think the other form, uh, which the board uh, actually has, is also control, right? You have the ability to fire the founder. You have the ability to fire the CEO, if need be. Um, And we think that's probably not necessary for a lot of what we're doing. Um, And for a lot of the the companies that we're helping out, um, they uh, they need the help of introductions, the right network, the right people. Uh, But us... Kind of, we don't a don't want to sit on hundreds of board seats, and b um, it doesn't really help us if we, you know, in any way fire the founder, for example, because then who's going to run the company, right? So because we decide to go kind of the more quantity route um, mm-hmm. of seeing if we could fund a lot of these businesses algorithmically, um, it doesn't make any sense for us to 
uh, sit on boards, for example. Got understood. And another another thing that uh, ClearCo has sort of championed and innovated on are the terms that they give uh, they actually give the founder. So speak to me about a, a twenty a twenty minute term sheet and and what that actually means. Because if anybody's raised money and they don't know ClearCo, that probably doesn't make any sense to them. Um, yeah. That's not normal. So what's a 20 minute term sheet and how did, is that part of the algorithm? That's what allows you to do this, correct? That's right. And now it's probably a lot faster, uh, but we're essentially through the algorithm able to, but after we've taken all the data in 20 minutes, kind of provide people a, a term sheet or the terms of how much capital we were able to give them at what terms, at what, um, what costs and the way the terms work, it's, uh, Pretty, it's pretty simple. Uh, so, for example, if we give a business $100,000, um, we would, the fee that ClearCo makes is a flat fee. So, it would charge $100,000 plus, let's say, a 6%, like a $6,000 fee. So, ClearCo would ever, only ever make $6,000. Um, now, how that $6,000 or $106,000 needs to be repaid is as a percentage of revenue. So, as ClearCo, right, um, kind of, we're hoping that these businesses grow quickly and we get paid back faster than we expected, right? Then it's kind of a win-win. Um, in the down case where the business is you know, going through a rough patch, we had a lot of that actually at the start of 2020 when COVID first hit and a lot of these businesses were in trouble. Um, it actually kind of worked out, right? Not, I mean, it essentially, sorry, didn't work out for anyone in the sense that we're all True, I understand, happy, I understand. right? But yeah. it was actually a, a point in time where it was very beneficial because as the business revenues are down, we're not asking for more money. We're not asking for a fixed money. We're, we're proportionally, we also get less money back, right? Yeah. Uh, so it very much aligns the incentive of the business as well as ClearCo. And uh, we found that to be um, very helpful. Uh, even when it comes, comes to kind of how we're thinking about building new products or how we're thinking about uh, helping the founders, because the incentives are so well aligned, a lot of times it's like, Whatever helps the founder grow their business, it helps ClearCo at the end of the day. Understood. So, so that is that is a great sort of summary of ClearCo, and and this is something that you have to be very proud of. But I want to really speak about what you're passionate about now, which ClearCo is was more on the on the one to ten side. So after they figured yeah. out a process, ClearCo is helping them scale. So I want to figure out one of the most complex and complicated and and misunderstood uh, things in startup land, which is going from zero to one, and that's what you're focused on right now with, with new companies, correct? That's right. That's right. And okay. I think even at ClearCo, a lot of my job was taking something, whether that's a team or a new product from zero to one, and then yeah. hiring someone smarter than me to replace myself. And uh, um, yeah, the, you know, we've, ClearCo's gone to a place where we're well past the one stage. And uh, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, let's, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about some strategies for going from zero to one. So um, first of all, when you say you're 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 working from zero to one, provide some context. Are you talking about going in as a as a consultant to uh, or as like a, a mentor or an advisor to a founder? Um, because zero to one is is very early on. So is that pre revenue? Is that pre product market fit? When do you get involved? And and what does an entrepreneur look like when you start working with them? Oh, so yeah, so um, I. I do some advising, angel investing, and kind of mentoring uh, when it comes to helping companies. Um, and the areas that, when it comes to from an advising perspective, it's that uh, usually they are before product market fit, 
they're kind of the early stages. Sometimes they have a little bit of revenue, but maybe one or two customers and trying to figure out how do I get my first 10 customers. Uh, and I think zero to one looks different for every business. It, it looks different even depending on what the problem you're trying to solve. It's really that early stage of trying to figure out um, what is the right solution for a given problem before you start to scale it. And then you run into scaling problems, which is a different set of problems from one to 10. Um, so for ClearCo, for example, or any, any business in the early days, uh, there's two types of things that you know, I spent a lot of time doing. One is finding product market fit for a new market or a new product. Uh, and that zero to one involves a lot of experimentation. And then there's the other type of zero to one of building a team. So um, saying, you know, we don't have a marketing team or we don't have a growth team, or we don't have a biz ops team. And how do we do it? Uh, well, there's no right or wrong answer per se, but uh, you, know, you kind of just kick it off, get it going and eventually hire a team and uh, hire yourself out of a job. Um, so when you, when you work with companies, they could be pre-product market fit. So what are some of the, the experiments that you run or what is the, how do you, what's the definition of product market fit? How do you know when you found product market fit? That's probably a, a better way of saying it. And then how do you, once you know when you found product market fit, how do you work backwards and, and experiment so that you you can actually get there? And I know yeah. that there's a million different industries. So it's like, we only have, we only have a podcast worth of time to do this, but a high level stuff that could be applicable to anybody. That's right. That's right. I, I think um, there's a few lessons I've learned and mistakes, a lot of mistakes I've uh, uh, made over the years. Um, I think the elusive product market fit, like, like uh, maybe what you're alluding to, Scott, it's like, there's a lot of different definitions out there. And um, it's, I think a couple of things I've learned over the years, one thing I'll clarify a little bit, or my belief around product market fit is that it's not a static, it's not a static thing. It's not something that you find product market fit and you could just, you know, you're done, <laughs> your, job, your job's done. I see it very much as a um, kind of a, uh, like, I don't know, dance is the right kind of analogy for it, but the, the sense that the market is constantly moving and your product needs to fit what the market needs. So uh, there's been a lot of cases where companies would have product market fit for a period of time, but then they lose it right over the years as the market changes and what the needs of their customer changes. So I think that's one thing to, to remember for product market fit is that it's not something you kind of done and forget, um, but rather it's something that you need to keep kind of working with the customers on. And for the most part, I believe that a, uh, there's those common sayings that you kind of, you know there's product market fit. You kind of feel it when you have it. Uh, usually, people mean that because the um, for you to acquire a customer or for the economics to kind of run the business or get a new customer is so efficient or so low because you've built something that people want uh, that it just feels like all the customers are coming in. And I feel that usually a pretty decent definition depending on what kind of business you're in. So if you're in a kind of a more SMB or B2B business, once you kind of get your first 10 customers that are non, that are not your friends and family, um, you kind of know that you're onto something. Uh, you might not have full product market fit, but you're, you're onto something. Uh, for consumer, that number might be more like 100 or 1,000, depending on what kind of consumers you're targeting. Uh, and uh, th that's how I look at it. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Indeed. Now, in 2022, make a commitment. This is the year that you're going to build your business. You're going to turn your passion into profit. But to do that, 
we all know you need the right team and that is by far the most difficult part of building and scaling a business. I've hired tons of people. I personally use Indeed and Indeed is the easiest way to build a team with the right skills. Ultimately, that's what you need to make your business goals a reality. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the partner where you can attract the right candidates, interview them and hire them all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site that guarantees that you're going to find the quality of candidates that you need. And these candidates have to meet your must have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hundreds of hours on multiple job sites, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. And Indeed partners with you every step of the hiring process. You can find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. For example, if you've never used Instant Match, the second you post a job or a requisition and you sponsor that post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes match the particular requirements for that job. Indeed is one of the easiest, most simple to use and user-friendly experiences when it comes to hiring, which is already stressful enough. They put together a special offer for Success Story podcast listeners. So right now, you can start hiring. You get a $75 sponsored job credit. This is going to upgrade your job boost at indeed.com slash success story. The offer is valid through March 31st. Remember, go to Indeed. And you say you even and you say you even close uh, a thousand consumers or even, you know, 20, 10,000 uh, consumers. Do you feel like you um, is there a certain channel, like, for example, like, say I spend a million dollars on ads, this is obviously a ridiculous example, say I spend a million dollars on ads, or eh, like $100,000 on ads, okay. say I spend $100,000 on ads, and I close uh, $20,000 or $30,000 in revenue. Mm -hmm. um, that's obviously not a great ROAS. So no. do you feel like that would be? Uh, when do you think that I would have achieved some sort of product market fit, even though I feel like I'm just buying and 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 my CAC is super high. And I do have customers, I ha do have people that are buying my product, but I haven't quite figured out how to make my business profitable yet. So when's the point where you you keep that machine going? Is it a year, two years? Or, uh, or do you hope to achieve some sort of profitability um, sooner than that? I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, uh, you can buy customers for any product in the world, but it doesn't always mean you have product market fit. That's right. I think of economics uh, or unit economics of a business to be quite important to product market fit. Um, so let's use that analogy, right? Like spending a, a million dollars or a crazy amount of money to yeah. get $30,000 worth of revenue. Um, you know, anyone will look at them and say, you probably haven't found something. <laughs> you're just paying <laughs> people, you're paying people a dollar to earn, you know, three cents on the dollar. And that's probably not going to be sustainable. Um, the only case where that might be sustainable is that if you have some kind of crazy long retention where that, mm -hmm. that customer is coming back repeatedly uh, uh, for a long period of time, but then you'll need to prove out that they'll if you're only making 30,000, that's a number of years before you'll ever make back your million dollars, right? So um, one of the lessons I did learn uh, kind of building both Clearco and my previous business is at an early stage, um, LTV treat the repeatability of business, of customers, more like almost like, a, I don't know if gravy is the right word, but yeah, like treat that as a bonus. Don't rely too much on the revenue uh, or the repeat revenue 
past a year, two years is really stretching it, mostly because you don't, the business would be so different two years from now, right? And uh, for you to rely on the revenue on year three or even year two of a customer um, will, I'm not, there's definitely exceptions to the rule, but it's going to make um, you as an entrepreneur running the business much harder. So a lot of times I focus on kind of that year one profitability. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to run a profitable business as a whole. It just means that the math for every customer that you're buying um, should be profitable uh, or should not be, you know, should be paid money. Unless you have a hypothesis around, uh, there, there are, again, exceptions to this rule. So for example, if you're in a marketplace business where um, like a lot of businesses like Uber or the, the kind of the heavy marketplace business was famous for doing this for a while, where they were acquiring customers at a loss because they said that, or the hypothesis was that once they hit a critical mass, then every kind of the, the flip switched, right? Yeah, One of the also yeah. the funny enough, the lessons we learned from the, the Uber and kind of the, the realm of uh, delivery businesses is that a lot of them, A, a lot of them went bankrupt. And two, yeah. even for Uber, it took many, many years. I'm not even sure if today they're, they're profitable on an economic basis, but it's, um, you need to raise a lot of money to, to run a business like that. So it, it's, it's stressful. So obviously that is not the majority of people out there trying yeah. to build companies. Um, okay, that's good. That's good. That's good insight though. Um, and then, okay, so we're talking about uh, product market fit. One thing that I've seen you speak about often is founder market fit. So what's the difference between product market fit, founder market fit, and who cares about founder market fit? Is it an investor, advisor, angel, or is it someone, is it, is it the team? Like, what is that founder market fit? Yeah, I think both. Uh, so as, as a, an investor, I look a lot more for founder market fit nowadays. Uh, so um, there, there's something people talk about, about, you know, first time founders, you look a lot about, you think a lot about product. Second time founders, you think a lot about distribution of how to get the product out to your customers. Um, uh, one thing I'd add to that is like almost like third time founders, you think a lot about the people, like who's actually involved in the business because it's the people that's based on their skill set. They will have access to different distribution channels as well as they'll have different ways of thinking about building a product. Um, it's kind of like that analogy of, you know, to a hammer, everything is a nail, right? And depending on my skill set as a founder, um, the way I would solve a problem is very different from you or someone else um, solving a problem. And uh, that's something that kind of very much made me realize about uh, businesses is that kind of like show me the team and I'll show you the product that they'll build almost. And it's a, essentially a reflection of who the team was. Uh, and the, to me, the founder market fit just means that do you have the right team or do you have the right founders or founding team in place to tackle this right market or this right problem set? Um, and I think a lot of this is half skill set but also half interest based right like um for example like i'd say my skill set is perhaps not as heavy or not as good in the either the pure consumer space like the i'm probably not going to build the next tiktok or facebook because i don't use instagram i don't really use tiktok that much so uh it's just not something in my uh not even out of skill set just out of like interest it's not there for me um and i think this is different for every founder and every team and I think this is why it's also it's just as important for me as an investor, but it's also as important for myself when I'm operating or um, from, a, from a team perspective, because then it's kind of like the question of what are you really your strengths essentially and what are you really doubling down on? Um, and I think it's very important to, to understand that when you're building a, building a company.
Right. Um, and when you you speak about um, finding that right team, so let's tie that into one of the first things you said, which was, I want to make myself redundant. I want to basically hire myself out of a job. So how does somebody do that? How does somebody find people? What is your strategy for when you're starting a company? And this is obviously something you probably teach over to founders, but what's your strategy when you're starting a company? How do you make yourself redundant? Yeah, um, I think about the redundancy perhaps past the zero to one stage. I think okay. the zero to one stage, I pretty, I, well, this is kind of why I look for a lot for a founder market fit because I think the, it's going to be the founders or it's going to be the founding team that's going to be critical from getting them from pretty much nothing, right? Just an idea to something yeah. that's actually working, product market fit, makes money. Um, and then in terms of kind of redundancy, I think the, I, I think there's two ways to hire. Um, one is uh, hiring people who kind of complement you. Um, and then there's the hiring people who are kind of like similar to you, right? And I think it's, uh, I, I think they're, they're not two separate concepts, but the same concept. And so what I mean by that is, uh, I think when it comes to hiring, it's important that to hire people who complement your skill set, but are actually the same as you or similar to you from a kind of worldview perspective. Um, and this is where kind of like the, the question of diversity kind of comes, kicks in a little bit of you kind of want diverse skill set or diverse perspectives, but you actually don't want to like, you don't want people who are having conflicting like missions or conflicting mm -hmm. goals as you, because or else you'll always be arguing on the, the fundamentals. And that's what I look for in the founding team as well, is um, as well as, as, well as co-founders that I look for my, for myself, for my next business is very much, they're aligned very much with me in terms of the mission, the way we kind of see the world, what we want to accomplish. If it's something kind of a, on a fundamental level basis, would we agree? And then above that, you actually do want the diversity of thought, right? Diversity of opinions of how would you tackle this problem? Hopefully their perspective is not the same as me or else I'd have a bunch of you know, Charlie clones. Uh, that's not very helpful. So uh, that's what I think a lot about when it comes to hiring. Um, and I very much try to hire people who are uh, kind of more experienced or people that I would want to almost work for, right? Or people mm -hmm. I would work, want to work for if the circumstances are different and they are the perfect people to essentially replace me. Right. Um, and at what point do you feel like the founding team should start to hire um, those experts to scale? At what point do you feel like the business has progressed enough so that you can hire a team of people that can that can take it and scale it? Um, because are you ever concerned about are you ever concerned about that sort of that second tranche of, of hires after the founding team? Um, not and, and this is very normal, not having the same convictions or passions uh, for the business that that founding team has. Yeah, it's 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 tough. Uh, you know, I've seen it done well. I've seen it done poorly. Um, I actually believe that uh, from a uh, kind of, I don't actually see it as kind of like tranche one or tranche two of, of hiring. I, I think about it very much as um, who can you influence when you're making those hires. And I think you know, Google was very famous for, uh, I believe. Larry Page and, and, and Sergey, they, they, were, they were interviewing people up to like the 200th people or something like that. They were very much, very hands-on uh, with the curating essentially who kind of joins Google in the early days. Uh, and I think the importance of that is you're, again, as exactly you said, Scott, like looking for that kind of conviction and looking for those people who share the same kind of, I guess, desire for that, that conviction for, for mm -hmm. the mission you're trying to go after. Um, 
and over time that's going to dilute right over time yeah. where people have uh, it's harder to keep that and uh and, and as a result i think it's even it makes it even more important that your first 10 hires because those are probably the people that you'll be spending the most time with um, and you'll have to at some point rely on that those 10 people will hire the next 100 people right so uh, i think a lot about how do you build good culture for the first 10 20 people um, and uh, almost cross your fingers and hope things go well <laughs> um are there any other are there any other lessons or, or learnings things that you've succeeded at or, or failed at and have learned from from that zero to one phase um so we sort of spoken about uh founder market fit product market fit um first hires uh what about scaling from zero to to one what is what does that process look like what's the testing process the experimenting process uh channels that you should try when you should give up on channels if you should at, at, at all like what's that whole mindset of scaling because that's tough too yeah uh i'll first talk about uh i'll, I'll talk a little bit about experimentation because i think i spent sure. a lot of time doing that uh, but first i'll talk about a story where a, a mistake i made quite early on um that i've uh taken with every other business i've built which is uh kind of not charging your customers early enough um and uh, kind of going back to that idea of, you know, you measure, you measure a person's uh, kind of intentions by the actions they make rather than the words they say. Uh, and I think that's very true when it comes to, you know, this, this marvelous product that you've built. And the question is, well, does anyone ever want it? Right. And uh, I think uh, for my first company, first product, I remember uh, kind of doing a lot of customer development interviews, right? I talked to a hundred people. I got a lot of people on wait lists. I got a lot of people who said, you know, I, I like that. I think what you're building is great. Um, all these kind of strong, positive words of encouragement. Uh, and then what it hit me is that, you know, I didn't ask them for their credit card. I didn't ask them for to pay for anything. And then when I did, when you know, we finally spent months to build a product, uh, it turns out that a lot of the positive words were, uh, they were caveated with kind of other reasons why they couldn't pay or why, they were still missing this one feature or why I was still missing this something. Uh, and it kind of made me realize that the, the, in the early days, what you really care about is learnings. You're trying to maximize the quality of learnings and uh, kind of the quality of learnings, quality of the feedback and charging. Cause you know, when, when I was kind of uh, starting my first company, it was, I always thought that, you know, uh, I want to, I don't want to charge people money because they're my early supporters. They're oftentimes friends or people I know. And as a result, I, I, I don't want to you know, take money from them, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not so much about charging people for the sake of making a dollar uh, or making money, but it's really about how do you maximize your learnings. And charging people is one way to uh, increase what they, they increase the learnings, right? And it's really about how do I maximize the efficiency of my feedback? I have a certain period of time. Companies don't die because of, um, companies usually die because founders give up. Companies die because you run out of time. Time is your most valuable asset when you're building a business in that zero to one phase. And the, the important thing is how do I well, maximize the efficiency of every you know, day or month I, I spend doing that? Uh, and Sometimes, for example, if you're working in the more enterprise section um, of, of businesses, like if you're working like a six-figure, potential six-figure deal in the future, uh, you might not want to charge your first customer, uh, your inaugural first customer, you know, six figures. But 
even charging them a $0 invoice is actually quite good because what it does is that for that large enterprise, if you're charging, if you're making uh, an enterprise of over a hundred or a few hundred people um, sign and do a $0 invoice, it actually makes their legal team to review the invoice and makes the finance team, you know, they have to do all the procedures, right? And it makes them actually have to commit, even though they're not paying anything monetarily, um, it's a much higher commitment than just kind of a pilot with literally no strings attached. Um, and I think what you're trying to do uh, is again, maximize your learning. So this could be done via charging people, asking them for the credit card and you'll see you know, people's real reasons and excuses come out. Um, or uh, you could, you know, you do another way for consumer apps is you really uh, measure how they use the app. So you don't care so much about the number of signups. We care about the daily usage or time they spend on the app and things like that. So, uh, Very yeah. smart, yeah. Very much asking okay. people uh, for their credit card early on. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Ladder. Now, over the past two years and a bit, I'm sure we've all realized that how precious and fragile life can be. And the last thing that you want to be worried about when something horrible happens is how you're going to afford it. And that's why I am a firm believer in life insurance so that if something does happen, you're not passing those costs onto your kids or your family. Now, if you're asking yourself, how do I find affordable long-term coverage? How do I find affordable monthly that can protect my family from anything that happens? Well, the answer to that question would be latter because if you wait longer, life insurance does cost more money. So when you set term coverage when you're young, you can get incredible coverage for a relatively low price. And Ladder is 100% digital. So no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. When you apply for $3 million or less, you can just do it online. Need a few minutes, phone and a laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. If you prefer to talk to somebody, they also do have a team of licensed agents. They don't work on commission, so they'll help you. They won't upsell you. There's no hidden fees. You can cancel at any time, and you can get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. And Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. They're all rated A and A plus by AM Best. So finally, Ladder is offering an option for people that want to protect their family that want to start getting behind life insurance at a younger age. So if you want to see if you're instantly approved, you can go to ladderlife.com slash success story. You'll see if you're instantly approved. That is ladder, L-A-D-D-E-R, life.com slash success story. That's ladderlife.com slash success story. Yeah, no, that, that, I like that. I, I like that idea a lot. I love the idea of, of even like with a pilot, you're forcing, uh, you're forcing the company to go through like, you know, AP and legal and whatnot just to get to to push them to take action, even if it's even if it's not financial. It's very it's a smart idea. Um, okay, so the, the, but you also mentioned that that was that was one learning, but then you you said you would uh, just speak on um, scaling and growing. So that's maximizing your learnings, but scaling from zero to one. What are some things that you've encountered or done right or done wrong um, to to move the needle on that? Because that's experimenting is one, but that that's not testing different channels. That's just sort of maximizing learning with the customer, which is incredibly important. Not to diminish that. So how do you? So what are your suggestions for channels to try uh, marketing or sales strategy at an early stage? Yeah, I think I think the. Um... You know, I've, I've tried a lot of different channels uh, over the years, and uh, most of them, 
fail and a few of them succeed. And I think that's one of the things people should remember is that the 80-20 rule applies very well when it comes to marketing or distribution is that probably 80% of your customers will come from like 20 and by 20%, usually it's like for startups, like it's one channel. <laughs> uh, it could be Facebook, it could be Google, it could be SEO, depending on whenever, no matter what it is, it's usually probably one to two, maybe two channels for, for a startup is where most of your customers will come from. Um, and I think one of the things, uh, both for channel experimentation or just experimentation in general, uh, that I stress a lot to, to founders I work with or my team is to kind of draw a line in the sand. Uh, and what I mean by that is to write down your hypothesis or, or write down when you will kill that experiment, right? And it doesn't mean that once you cross that line, you have to kill your experiment. You could choose not to. You have a new set of information at that point in time. Uh, but I think uh, as humans, we have a lot of revisionists. Uh, or like a, we're very good revisionist historians, right? We um, we we were very good at rationalizing and looking back and painting a new story uh, once the time comes. And uh, maybe it's just my memory short, but I've always find myself when I don't kind of think through what are the kill criteria, as I call them, for a certain experiment or a certain channel, uh, that you know, two months later, I'll find myself finding myself excuses to keep that channel or keep going, just one more, just spend another you know, week of money on it. And yeah. Every time I've done that, it hasn't done me well. Uh, it's uh, um, so yeah. As a result, one of the things I focus a lot about, especially when it comes to kind of experimenting the distribution side, is very much what are my kill criteria? What am I expecting? So let's say I launch a new Facebook campaign or ad for a new audience. What am I expecting for a rollout? And how long do I expect to see that? Um, and that sets a date in my calendar. In which case, I'll revisit. And I could choose to push through and say, hey, you know, even though it didn't work out as I expected, I want to try this experiment again for another week, right? But it kind of creates that forcing function for you to revisit. Uh, and uh, if you don't, especially when it comes to ads or distribution, uh, yeah, Facebook will keep eating your money <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> easily. Easily. <laughs> very, very easily. Um, I, want to, I want to ask a couple of rapid fire questions just to pull up from your career, but is there any other last learnings or insights um, that you wanted to go into for that zero to one environment for a startup that we didn't cover? I think we covered a good deal about it. Um, the kill criteria is something I, I think a lot about. And I, I think lastly is um, when, it, when it comes to zero to one, it's important to stay close to the metal, as they call it. So like if you're the founder or if you're the person that's kind of responsible for it, and I think this gets harder as you are a um, it's by harder, I mean more so it's, it's kind of against the grain as you're managing a larger team or, you know, in the early days when you're building your company, you're naturally talking to the customers every day. And then as the company gets bigger, you have a manager that does that, right? And you have a manager that manages someone that does that. Uh, and you soon realize yourself that while you're making all the decisions, you're not the one that's actually speaking to the customers. And you have this kind of broken telephone of a feedback loop of what the customers really want. Um, and oftentimes as a founder, what got you to where you are is because you have pretty good instincts, right? Um, or that's at least your instincts for round one. And you kind of went from that zero to one, worked out. Uh, and I think founders usually have pretty good instincts. Um, whereas, you know, most people actually have pretty good instincts in their domain. Uh, trust that instinct. Try to figure out where, try to get closer to the customer or closer to the ground where you can get that 
raw, I guess, information fed to you, uh, it'll help make you you make zero one decisions a lot better. Is uh, what I found. Great. Um, before I pivot into some of these rapid fire, if people want to connect with you, um, what's the best social channel? Is it LinkedIn, Twitter? Where do you want people to go? Yeah, probably uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, I, I'm not that much on social media, but uh, Twitter and LinkedIn is uh, perhaps the best uh, places to find me. So that's Charlie the, uh, C. Fang. Yeah. Charlie C. Fang. Okay, perfect. Um, and that'll be in the show notes too. Okay, so a couple rapid fire questions to close this out. Biggest challenge that you've overcome in your life? What was it? How did you overcome it? Cool. I'd say the the biggest challenge that kind of comes to mind is um, building my first startup, uh, where I had nothing, no network, uh, no idea of what to do even, and um, a lot of you know great information, even like awesome podcasts like yours, uh, didn't exist. So I didn't really know what I'm supposed to do, um, and I think what uh, what kept me hopeful or what kept me uh what was what you know what made what helped us uh, kind of make made us through is a combination of just having a lot of conversations with customers a lot of times customers kind of know what they want like there is the the saying of kind of like you know you ask uh the, the fourth saying of like you know you ask your customers what they want they'll tell you a faster horse but a lot of times depending on what field you are the customers actually just tell you what they want uh, to, to get built and you know, you might not build them exactly what they tell you, but they will give you a lot of information. And uh, find those champions and customers and keep talking to them. And the other one is finding good co-founders. I think that's something that's very underestimated. Uh, you'll have ups and downs. Startups is a definitely a roller coaster um, of, a, of a journey. And very much, hopefully, when you're down, your co-founder can kind of pick you up and kind of vice versa. So I think that's also one of the most critical decisions that we'll be making. Um, if you had to choose one person, there's obviously been many, but one person who's had a major impact on your life. Who was that person, and what did they teach you? Uh, uh, a, a lot of folks um, has so much impact. But I think one of the most recent ones that's really stuck with me um, over the over the pandemic is a uh, is a is a coworker and a friend. Uh, his name is Kent, um, and one of the quotes that he left with me was kind of, "Everyone is the hero of their own story," and it just kind of goes back to uh, making you realize that everyone's kind of fighting a battle that you don't know about and everyone is you know, from their perspective uh, and from you know from my perspective i'm the hero of my story right and from everyone's perspective they're a hero of their own story and it's easy to forget that especially the chaos of especially how much that the world has changed in the last two years and uh, that that quote has stuck with me with humbling and uh, kind of making you realize um, uh, kind of look from the other people's lens a little bit here and there very good quote. Um, your favorite source to learn or grow? A podcast, book, something that you've picked up recently or not that uh, that you'd suggest somebody else go check out? Uh, actually, so there's a lot of podcast. Uh, there's a lot of books I like. Uh, recently, been reading some Ray Dalio. Uh, Naval has some great content. Uh, but I think one thing that I've actually done more of uh, over the last uh, few months that I, I want to do more of in 2022 is rereading. Um, there's always that book that you know you really enjoyed reading, uh, or you thought it was a great book that you recommend to others all the time. Uh, but what I found is that you know once you reread it, you realize that there's like things that you didn't pick up the first time reading it, and uh, that's something uh, I'd, I'd recommend do more. If you could tell your 20 year old self one thing, what would it be? Um, 
value, as cheesy as it sounds, value friendship and value those. Uh, I think all good things in life uh, comes from compounding, like the, the typical Warren Buffett thing of like compounding is the eighth wonder. Uh, mm-hmm. When it comes to money, financial, compounding is your greatest asset. But I, also, I think that also flows to other things in life, like relationships. Um, I think the best relationships are those ones that, um, yes, as, as great of a, anyone's networker you are, you can, you can make a friend in, over uh, you know, a cocktail or in one evening. Uh, but the best friendships, the ones who will have your back during the rainy days, uh, are going to be those old friends of yours. And I think yeah. um, I wish I invest uh, more time in those relationships. And so I do think uh, all good things in relation, all good things in life come from compounding, including relationships. And I would recommend my twenty-year-old self to do more of that. And then, last question: What does success mean to you? Uh, it's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh, I think success to me is really, well, it's happiness. And I think probably is for many people, um, like what makes myself the most happy. Uh, and I think what that means for me is really just working on cool projects or working on cool things with people you like. And uh, I guess that's actually one of the reasons I really like startups so much is because you choose your team. You could choose who you want to work with. And um, that's, again, the kind of that, uh, the, who you surround yourself with will oftentimes define your happiness more than anything. So that's, uh, that's, that's what it means to me. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there, juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
card, it's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 